0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. We've got a Bible? Let's open up to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, and I will pray for us while you turn there. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. Lord, you know all the ways that we have wrong theology. Lord, you know all the ways that even where we might have pristine theology, we have terrible application or no application or uh, lackadaisical, lazy application. Lord, you know where we tend more to legalism and more towards licentiousness. Lord, where there's pride, where there's insecurity, um, where there's just confusion, Father. And so we're coming to you this morning, and we want to be informed. We want more clarity. We want more wisdom. We want more insight. But we don't want just academic knowledge to pass a test, Lord. We want um, our hearts to be warmed, our affections to be stirred, Lord, our whole lives to be motivated in pursuit of you in the big things and the small things and everything. So give us wisdom. Give us fresh insight into your word today, into our own lives and hearts, into the lives and hearts of those people that we lead and minister to, uh, that we may, whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, do it all for your glory. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I said, you know, kind of made a turn a couple weeks ago, getting more practical. The next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to really try to diagnose what does it mean to be legalistic, okay? A lot of times we say, legalism, um, and and there can, like with this, there can be a ditch on both sides of the road. You have some, like, really tight conservative people that say, well, legalism means, you know, if you're a Catholic or a Church of Christ person and you believe you're saved by works, that's a legalist. Well, that's true, okay? But if you're not doing that, if you don't think you're saved by works, you're not a legalist, okay? Um, Then you have other people on the other extreme that say, anybody that's serious about any kind of rules or discipline, they're a legalist, right? So if somebody's like, I do 15 minutes of burpees a day and I don't eat pizza. You know, they're like, you're a legalist, you know? Okay, ridiculous. But here's the thing in the middle, there are several different ways that you can be a legalist. There are nuances of legalism. Does that make sense? And so we're going to look at Jesus and how he explains legalism. Um, Remember, legalism was not a word they even had in the Bible, it's never used. But it's certainly a concept, just like the Trinity is not a word that was ever used in the Bible, but the concept certainly there. So today we're going to look at legalism under this heading. It's adding to the law of God. One of the ways that you can sin by being a legalist is any time you try to add to the Word of God. So we're going to look in Matthew chapter 12. Okay, Now, um, <clears throat> just let's, let's remember the very beginning where we started. When sin first entered the world, Adam and Eve essentially believe this lie that satan was implying to them god's not really good you can't trust him you got to look out for yourselves so they go they buy the lie they bite the fruit the sense of shame comes in and their instantaneous first reaction in one sense is to forget about their relationship with god to get hyper focused on the relationship with one another and try to cover themselves up try to put their best foot forward that that's a picture of legalism in two ways Oftentimes legalism is, is it's not about trying to earn my way into heaven. It's about trying to impress my neighbor. It's much more at the horizontal level than it is the vertical level for many people. And I think we're going to see this in this passage that it's about trying to cover up my shame. It's trying to put my best foot forward and make myself look better than I actually am. Now, the Pharisees, they started out as this separatist party. We don't want to sell out to the world. We don't want to dive into the Greco-Roman world and their culture and all this kind of Hellenistic influence. We want to stay pure. We want to stay devoted to the Word of God. There's a lot that's good there. But then they kind of got very prideful in their application. And, And Jesus, as you know, if you've ever read any of the Gospels, it's like he was always confronting them. Because one of the main things they did, and we'll see this come out over and over again, is they exalted their interpretation and their application of the Word of God over the pure word of God by itself. I mean, some of them would spend much more time studying different pharisaical interpretations of the Bible than they actually even would spend studying the Bible. Does that make sense? So first point, anytime you exalt man's word over God's word, that's legalism. If you treat man's word as more true than God's word, even in the name of trying to apply God's word, that's a form of legalism. And I'll show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 12, let's start in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he, entered the, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Now, this is very interesting. Okay? The Sabbath commandment was a part of the moral law. We've already said that. It was also part of the ceremonial law. Because what is the ceremonial law? The ceremonial law, in many ways, was God taking the moral law and applying it, the part that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, for the nation of Israel at that time. But then the Pharisees said, well, God didn't apply it enough. We got to apply it a little bit more. Make it clear. Okay. Now, um, anytime I try to turn my personal application into everybody's obligation, that's legalism. Anytime I try to say my application of the law of God is basically on par with the law of God, that's legalism. Do you understand what I mean? Okay. I've mentioned this in here before. If you take Ephesians chapter five eighteen and you say, "Okay, I don't want to ever get drunk with wine," I need to know myself, and so you make a rule. Let's just say your rule, okay, is I will never have more than two drinks in a night, and I will only drink if I'm with other Christians. Those are kind of going to be my two safeguards. Listen, if that's just a personal application on yourself to guard yourself from the sin of drunkenness, that's wisdom. That's not legalism. That's maturity. That's sanctification. But then if you go from there and say, every single Christian, if any Christian in the universe ever has more than two drinks in a the night, they're in sin. Well, now you're a legalist because you're essentially you're essentially adding the Word of God. Does that make sense? You wouldn't say that, but in your heart, practically, that's what you're doing. Okay? I mean, <clears throat> some of y'all may have heard me say this before, but one of the things that I've done in my life for a long, long time, and I still do, is... I've got my iPhone so locked down, I tell people it's the biggest waste of the iPhone ever, okay? I mean, I can email and text, and that's almost it. You know, I have very few apps. I don't have any social media on my phone, all this kind of stuff. If I want to get a new app, and I'm a 45-year-old grown man, if I want to get a new app, I have to go to my wife and say, will you put in the passcode, let me get the app store, download the app, you know? Why? She doesn't put that rule on me. I put that rule on myself, because I don't trust myself. But do you realize how arrogant... And stupid and immature it would be for me to say, if there's any Christian out there that has the access to the app phone all by themselves, they're a big sinner. That's, that's ridiculous. So never take your personal applications and turn them into the 11th commandment. Their personal application, you can suggest it for other people if they're struggling with the same sin, but never try to make your word equal with God's word. Which, again, I don't think most of us would say that's what we're doing. But practically, oftentimes, that's exactly what's happening. And it's certainly what was happening with the Pharisees. You see, what it wasn't wrong for them to have personal applications. But what they had done is they would take a commandment of God. and then they, Let's just take the Sabbath. They had taken the Sabbath. And they had come up with 39 different time, types of work. And there would be things like, well, you can't move a chair on the Sabbath. Because if you pick a chair up to move it, that would be... Carrying a burden, and that's work. And if you just scoot the chair over, it might dig into the dirt, and that would be like plowing. So you just can't move a chair on the Sabbath. I mean, it's this minuscule exalting of the external application rather than the heart behind it. And so they see Jesus and his disciples walking through the grain fields just getting a snack. And they're like, You're working, you're being like farmers, you're reaping, you're breaking the word. Now what Jesus does does which and I love this because he's trying to shake them out of their arrogance and their self righteousness. The Pharisees prided themselves on being experts in the Old Testament. I mean, some of them probably had the entire thing memorized. Many of them probably had the Pentateuch memorized for sure. Let's just let's just say that Connor uh, had set himself up as an expert in all things NBA. I don't even know if he likes the NBA, but let's just say that that was kind of like. His identity in life, he just told everybody, I know everything about the NBA. I know all the teams, all the players, all the stats, all the rankings. You know, I make all the predictions. I'm better than Las Vegas. I can tell you who's going to win, right? He's a and then one day Connor makes a comment, and Reed says to Connor, Hey, Connor, you ever dribbled a basketball? Have you ever actually been to an NBA game? Think about how insulting that would be. It's like I've built my whole life around the NBA. When Jesus says, haven't you guys ever read the Old Testament? you guys ever read that story about David I mean he is just throwing it in their face you morons you don't know what you're talking about you you have boasted in your pride in front of the whole nation like you're the experts on and you totally don't get it and he brings up this story that probably most of us remember when Saul first started trying to kill David David ran he and some of his men and he didn't have time to get supplies and so he comes to the priest at the tabernacle and he says we're starving we're on the run we're on a secret mission he actually lied to cover it up he was trying to protect the priest you got anything to eat here and the priest says well we got the bread of the presence that's supposed to be in the tabernacle before god but only priests are supposed to eat that if you go read what the pentateuch says but the priest says if you're really starving you can have it why because the moral law don't commit murder which part of that means promote life says man somebody's starving give them the bread That's so much more important than keeping the ceremonial law. Remember, the ceremonial law is meant to serve people. It's not meant to bind us up and just terrorize our conscience. You can interpret Jesus like this to say, listen, or no, who who did I read this in? I think this was Calvin, actually. He said, it was like if somebody was trying to take all the pharisaical interpretations of the Old Testament law seriously, they would scarcely be able to lift a finger without their conscience being stricken. That's not how God wants us to live. Okay? I'll just give you a little personal application of this, especially in light of the Sabbath, because we've asked talked about it before. I went through a season in my life, it's been a long time ago where I was going to try to be like a strict Sabbatarian. Right? I was going to try to have the strictest interpretation of the Sabbath that people do. So it's like, we're gonna wake up, we're not gonna cook anything. So it's like don't even use the freaking microwave. You just need a cold breakfast. Okay? Then you go to church. You know, at church, you talk to people, but you only talk about spiritual stuff. Don't you dare talk about the football game last night. And then you come home, you can take a nap, that's rest. You can lay in the hammock, that's rest, okay? Don't do any exercise. Don't do any yard work, which I hate yard work anyway, so that wasn't a problem, okay? Don't watch any TV unless it's Christian TV. Don't read anything unless it's Christian books. Don't go out to eat, because then you would be hiring somebody and making them work. And I, you know, and I, and I went, listen, and I we did it for months, and you know what I found? I wasn't worshiping God more. I wasn't enjoying God more. It just felt like this heavy, meticulous burden that I was, like, trying to self-manage. And then I'm trying to make my wife do it all, and that was really went over like a lead balloon. It was miserable. And then I started thinking about this passage, okay? Look at what Jesus is going to say. Uh, Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, that is our mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have uh, condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? And there's another place, I thought it was in this passage, but it's another passage where Jesus said, Listen, I made, uh, I didn't make man for the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath for man. The Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing that helps us not just some ceremonial law that we're supposed to keep and check a box and feel good about ourselves. Okay. Don Carson, he has this quote where he says, listen, the Pharisees' Sabbath rules were like mountains hanging from a little thread. And here's what he means. When you read what the Old Testament has to say about the Sabbath, it does talk about the Sabbath a lot, but when you get into the specific applications of what you could and couldn't do, it there's not really much. It's very scant. And the Pharisees were like to write whole books on what you could and couldn't do. They were making it up. They were making it up, and they were burdening people with them. Okay? They, they had become more fascinated with their own word than with God. That's obviously a problem. Okay? God's law is never meant to be a burden. It's just to way us down. It's supposed to be a blessing. Okay? Um, so if, if there was a way, think about this. If it was right for God's ceremonial law to be set aside for David... Certainly, Jesus and his disciples could set aside the ceremonial law when they were hungry. So, think about it. It's good, it's wise, it's right to have personal applications. It's wrong when you take your personal application and you make it a mandate for me. And again, most of us are probably not stupid enough to say that out loud, but here's how I've noticed it in my heart. Do I judge somebody else according to my standard? Now, it's right to judge other people, make a discernment about other people based on the Word of God, right? I mean, the favorite verse of pagans everywhere is, don't judge me, right? Judge not lest you be judged. It is a good thing for a Christian to come to another Christian or a non-Christian or professing Christian and say, listen, I'm not the king. I'm not the chief. I'm just a little messenger boy. But I'm coming to you, and I'm doing my best to look at your life. Look at what you tell me about your life. Take the Word of God and apply it, and something doesn't add up. You know, you say you're a Christian, and yet you're biggest party animal. You sleep around. You're drunk all the time. That doesn't seem to add up with the Word of God. That's a right kind of judgment discernment. But when I try to take my personal applications and judge other people, that's insane. All right. Second point, they exalted man's rituals over God's mercies. And that's the passage I just read. They exalt man's rituals over God's mercy. All right. The law was made to help us, to serve us, not just to burden us and weigh us down. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profaned the Sabbath and are guiltless? Here's what he's saying Worship happened on the Sabbath. So the priests were having to do works, they were having to kill animals, they were having to make sacrifices, they were sweating on the Sabbath. They were working. They were doing their job. Just like a lot of professional pastors today, their busiest day is on Sunday. And Jesus says, it's not sinful for them. And he says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, that, that, listen, that's a little bit mysterious. They probably didn't even fully understand what he's saying, but think about it. What was the temple about? The temple is about where God touches earth. Like the Ark of the Covenant is, is where my, it's my footstool. It's where God came to earth. It's where man could go back to a Garden of Eden type experience and be in the presence of God. At least the high priest once a year. And Jesus is basically saying if they're able to serve the presence of God like that and break the ceremonial law, everything the temple was foreshadowing is me. I'm here. I am God in the flesh touching earth right now. So my disciples that are serving me, if they need to break the ceremonial law to serve me, they're totally able to do it. Now, the Pharisees probably didn't fully understand what he was saying right then because they probably would have just killed him right there. So Jesus makes it a little bit more simple for them. Verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Here's what Jesus is doing. He, just like when he says... You can sum up the whole Old Testament and love God, love your neighbor. He's doing the same thing. What does God really care about? He cares about love. He doesn't care about box checking. He cares about honoring Him and respecting and caring for your neighbors. And if you're so caught up in doing the right thing according to your church's tradition and the process you miss people, you've blown it. And I don't think most of us would have had to think very long about ways that we've done that and that we've seen others do it. For the Son of, the man, so the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. What's he doing here? This is his kind of foretaste, his prediction. that, Hey, guys, I'm about to cancel the whole ceremonial law. So don't get so wrapped up in all these Sabbath ceremonial laws because I'm about to shut the whole thing down anyway. Keep your finger here in Matthew 12. We'll come right back, but flip over to Colossians chapter 2. Fairly famous verse, I think most of us have read before. Colossians chapter 2. And skip down to verse 16. What's um, your All right, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You understand what he's saying there? Nobody should be... Listen, now, if, if, if you came and said, Well, Paul, I got a guy in my church that professes to be a Christian. He's drunk. I mean, he shows up to church drunk. Paul would say, Well, of course you're supposed to speak up on that because the Word of God speaks up on that. What I'm saying is don't go judge them about food and drink and do they eat pork or do they not eat pork or, you know, do they have a glass of wine, or are they total abstainers, or do they go to Sunday night worship, or are they not go, he's like, don't judge them on stuff like that. Don't do it. Okay? And it just, here's, here's a side note, bottom line. If I feel like, maybe I need to go rebuke somebody for something, how clear can you point to a verse, and said you broke this verse. And to the degree you can't do that, you probably shouldn't go. That makes sense? Now, maybe with your best friend, maybe with your closest roommate, maybe with your best accountability partner, the person in your family that you're the closest to and they're the most mature spiritually, then it's okay to have a, hey, you know what? I'm stepping out here because I love you and I care about you and I can't necessarily point to a certain verse, but I just think something's off with you. That's a, but you've got to have a high level of trust and respect. To go there. Does that make sense? And even then, you need to hold it pretty lightly. If I'm really going to come after somebody, I need to be able to point to, this is not me. I'm just the messenger boy coming to deliver what God has said in his word. So, they exalt God's ritual over God's mercy. And the third thing is this. They exalt man's self-righteousness over salvation. They exalt man's self-righteousness over God's salvation. So look at verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Now, probably all of us who have been around church for very long, We've heard, well, you're not supposed to work on Sundays. not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But if your ox is in the ditch, which means if there's an emergency, right? And this is why we say people like doctors and policemen and firemen and all that, they should work. Because, you know, the suffering of the world doesn't stop on Sundays. Jesus takes that and says, let me, let me show you guys again how you're missing it. You guys know if your sheep falls into a ditch on Sunday, you don't just wait till the next day. Or for them, on the Sabbath, you don't wait till the next day. You go get it out then. But here's a man with a withered hand. And you guys have been around me long enough now, you know I got the power to heal him. But you'd rather me wait till tomorrow. You don't want me to heal him today. Why? Because you don't care about people. You don't love people. And think about it. If I'm a Pharisee and my sheep falls in the ditch, why would I be so motivated to go get my sheep out of the ditch even on the Sabbath? I love the sheep, okay? But probably not like... Most, most Pharisees and most ancient Israelites didn't have a sheep as a pet. Right. What was it? It's productive money. It's money. And we find out in other places in the Gospels the Pharisees love money. I'll get it out if it helps me. I'll get it out if it serves me. I'll be willing to break the ceremonial law if it's going to benefit my bottom line. But I don't want to break the ceremonial law. I want to hang on to my at least seeming self righteous externally. This guy can wait till tomorrow. It's the total reverse of God, right? Because he was willing to lay down what was personally beneficial for him to serve us. And they're the opposite of Christ. So there's almost like a smell test in legalism. Does it seem loving? Now, listen. Obviously, you could take that and you could extrapolate it into some weird applications. There used to be some old play, and I don't even remember the name of it, but, you know, it's like this uh, professor at a college, and he and his wife didn't have a good marriage, and, you know, there was some insecure student in the class, and so the wife decided she would have an affair with a student to help his security, you know, make him feel better about himself, you know, because she was going to love him. Well, that's stupid. Now, how do I know it's stupid? Because the Bible says very carefully... Don't commit adultery. Right? So if I think, well, this would be the most loving thing for me to do to commit adultery. It's like, doesn't matter what you think. But what about in all the gray issues where the Bible doesn't specifically speak? Then you, do, you let love drive you. You let love cover you. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, think about this. You can't put God in a box, right? We've heard that saying before, which, which in one sense is true. I can't put him in the box of Scripture, though, right? Because he says, you can take me at my word. You can trust my word. And so, so much of what developing a good theology and life practice is, is I'm trying to draw a box for my life, and the lines I'm trying to use are Scripture. Well, don't commit adultery. Okay, that's a clear line. Don't, Don't commit murder. That's a clear line. And there's some places where it's not clear. But as I'm wrestling through the gray issues, if I ever cross one of the clear lines, it's like, no, I can't go that direction. I may not have the full box, but I do have boundary lines that I have to stick to based on the Word of God. And again, it's wise to add personal applications in some of the gray areas. That's wisdom. That's maturity. Don't throw it out on other people. And listen, even your personal applications, hold them loosely because they might need to change over the years. Right? Right? You might have some season in your life where you really feel like, right now, the Lord does not want me to touch a drop of alcohol. Don't care what everybody else does, but for me personally, that's where I need to get. And then five years from now, you might be like, you know what? I think the Lord is okay if I have a glass of wine with dinner. And I I need to be able to let go of that because that was never... No, listen. If somebody says, you know, I think I've just matured past this whole uh, adultery business. That's just crap. I just... Well, no... You're full of crap, right? (laughs) You can't do that. But to mature past some of your past personal applications, that's pretty normal in my experience. Hold them loosely. They're not the Word of God. And and again, especially for us dealing with youth students, college students, we've got to help them delineate. What's the Word of God? What's a personal application? Okay? Um... We used to, well, we still do this. Every year, like our beach projects, our New Year's conference, we always have some seminar about dating and marriage because that's what everybody really cares about, right? It's like, yeah, I want to hear about Jesus. I really want to hear about getting married, okay? And so, but, again, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. We would have some people that would say so principally oriented, I'm only going to teach what the Bible says about dating. Well, that's a pretty darn short talk because the Bible doesn't say much, right? It's like, uh, don't have sex and, uh, you know, Only plan to marry Christians. The end. You know, and so most people are like, thanks for nothing, you know. I grew up as an atheist, but I think I could have figured that one out on my own, but that's what the Christian guy was going to say. And then other people would go to the other extreme where they're going to spell it out, and they're like, never give girls flowers until you put a ring on it. If you do, you're in sin, you know. And he's like, good gracious. So listen, this is part of learning to be a good teacher is we've got to learn to say... Here's the biblical principle that's eternal, that you can't mess with. It's like titanium. It doesn't bend. And here's here's the way I like to say it all the time. Now, let me give you some suggested applications. I'm not saying your applications have to be my applications. But let me tell you how I've personally wrestled with it, or maybe how I've seen somebody else personally wrestle with it, and how they've applied it. And these might be good personal applications for you to adopt for a season. But you don't have to adopt these applications. But you do have to figure out how to apply this in your own life side note guys this is why one-on-one small group mentoring discipleship whatever you want to call it is so important you can't do enough just from the pulpit there might be five percent of the population that's smart enough gifted enough disciplined enough driven enough maybe they've got the gift of teaching themselves and they can just hear a very principally oriented sermon and they can say i will figure out my personal applications But in my decades of ministry, the vast majority of Christians, even mature Christians, they do not live there. They need somebody to help them kind of prime the pump and come up with what's my personal application. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, If you go read this same story in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says Jesus was angry with them. It's really interesting. If you study all the Gospels... And you try to focus on the emotions of Jesus. What do you think? What's the main emotion that gets attributed to Jesus the most? You may want to take a guess? Anger. Good guess. Compassion. Okay. Compassion is number one. Right? He felt love, he felt compassion, moves with compassion. Something like it's in his guts, he feels compassion for people. But his second is anger. The compassion is almost always at the hurting, at the lost, at the masses of people, the weak, the needy, the suffering. And the anger is almost always at the self-righteous, the Pharisees. Sometimes maybe even his own disciples when they were self-righteous. Okay? Um, it's like compassion was his number one emotion, and his number two emotion was anger at people who lacked compassion which brings us all back to it's all about compassion it's all about love love god love people the pharisees prided themselves on being experts on god's law and their knowledge and practice and yet in their pursuit of self-salvation they actually missed god they missed his law they missed salvation now let's get real practical for a minute so here's suggestive applications right how do we do this in modern day and here's just a kind of a blanket statement Nine times out of ten, it has to do with exalting the external over the internal. Putting more emphasis on the fig leaf righteousness that other people see and not really caring about your heart attitude before God that he sees. Does that make sense? Okay. So is there any place in your life where you have turned a personal application into a law for everyone? Again, you may not say it out loud, but in the way that you judge other people. How, how do people in our circles, in the modern-day Protestant evangelical conservative church, how do people, and, and maybe you can share a personal story, or maybe you can share about a friend or somebody that's not here, and you don't want to talk about them behind their back. You don't say their name. You know, how have you seen other people do this? What topics and subjects do people tend to take their personal applications and turn them into a law for everybody? It's alcohol, for sure. Okay, alcohol is a big one in, in the southeast, okay? What else can you think of? I had a roommate in college, and his was, uh, his, was his, like, physical fitness. Okay, physical fitness. Yeah, you, you can have people. I, I had a seminary professor one time, and he says, I think eating a donut's sin. Mm-hmm. That's insane. You don't want to eat donuts, that's probably a great personal application. But to just say because it has so much sugar, it's sin for everybody, that's, that's arrogant. It was, it's, it's, listen, the best thing you can say is it's stupid. And it's probably His was the, it It's sinful to not get up early and go to the gym. Yeah. Got to get up early. Everybody, you know, getting up early. There's a lot of people, and they'll try hard when, you know, Jesus got up early out of the grave, you know, but it's like, yes. <laughs> okay, thank you. But, but there's never a law that says we have to get up early every morning, right? I've had friends in the special forces, and they sleep late every night because they're out late at night killing bad guys, so you're telling me that they're in sin because they went to bed at 3 a.m. and they still didn't wake up at 5? That's insane. Doesn't work that way, okay? What you can watch on TV? What kind of? I remember hearing a guy say. I remember hearing a, a Baptist preacher uh, at one time when I was growing up, a little small town country church, and he said, "The world calls rated R movies restricted. How can Christians go watch them?" And I'll be honest, in that second, that was a pretty convicting argument. Even the world calls them restricted. But I was like, wait a second. That ain't in the Bible. You know, I heard another preacher one time talking about alcohol. He said, people tell me, well, you know, Jesus drank wine and he made wine. And if you bring me a bottle of wine made by Jesus and bottled by the Holy Spirit, I'll have a drink with you. Again, at first that sounds real convicting. But you're like, that's not in the Bible. You're making this stuff up. Okay? Don't do it. Listen, money, how much you have to give above the tithe, how much you have to save you being a good steward i mean how much life insurance were again those are all great practical applications you turn them into law you're in trouble politics right all true christians vote republican if you care about life all true christians vote democrat if you care about immigrants again it sounds real convicting but it's just like can you show me that 100 the word of god Make your case. Have your personal convictions. Try to persuade people. But if it's not written down, hold it real loosely. Okay. Um, So much of legalism is about the comparison game. Wearing my righteousness on my sleeve so other people can see it. Right. Okay. Are there ways that you or I exalt ceremony ritual over mercy? How about this one? Some of you aren't married yet. Just get ready for this one. Getting ready for church, Sunday mornings, yelling at your wife, please hurry up. Why do we, every week we have to be late, you know? I'm on staff at the church. Surely we should be on time. Then you get there, hey, how's everybody doing? Great to be here. Just man, just, right? Because what I really care about is my appearance. And what do you think God cares more about? Being five minutes late to church? Or loving your wife and being gentle and compassionate with the weaker vessel. <laughs> I'll give you a funny example. I remember this is years ago, Florence, Alabama, church plant. And so new church, we're trying to figure stuff out and we kind of had this little lay leadership team we were talking about for the summer, trying to do something different to get some visitors to come. And somebody suggested the idea, what if we canceled Sunday school for the summer? We were a small church, you know probably didn't have a hundred people. And what we did is we, we just had one service, you know, a 10 a.m. service, and then we all went out and had a big picnic and so it was easy to invite friends and da-da-da. And this one lady, she was like, how dare you cancel Sunday school, you know? I'm not gonna be like the Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. Which I was like, I think Baptists like Sunday school more than us. But she was like, I'm a Presbyterian. We'll never cancel Sunday school. And it's like, again, do you have a verse on that? And the way she was talking about me, like she was like insulting people. You know, just this Angry, self-righteous, in her mind, Sunday school was like the sacred cow. Okay? And then third, where do we tend to wear our righteousness for others to see so that we can feel better about ourselves, right? We're checking the boxes. We want everybody to know. So, so much of this, guys, will show up in your relationships. So just... Think about it this way. Where do you tend to have the most conflict in relationships? Where do you tend to fall victim to the comparison game more often? Ask yourself that question, figure it out, and then start digging in your heart. And I bet you're going to find some of this kind of legalism. Where you're subtly, subconsciously, maybe even adding to the word of God, boasting in it, making yourself feel better. Look at verse 14. Well, let's start in verse 13 where we left off. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out, and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Now listen. There's the ultimate example of legalism. We keep the Sabbath perfectly. Let's go murder this guy. Let's just don't murder him on the Sabbath. Right. It's the height of their arrogance. It's the height of their blindness. Why? Because legalism withers your soul. It shrinks your capacity to see reality as it really is. Who God is. Who I am. Who I'm supposed to be. Because you're boasting the wrong thing. Now, you read the Gospels, one thing you see is the Pharisees were out to get Jesus, right? They're watching him. They're testing him. But also, if you read the Gospels enough, one thing you see is Jesus is going out his way to pick fights with the Pharisees. He did a lot of his miracles on the Sabbath. That wasn't an accident. It's kind of like, hey, Pharisees, you might want to come watch what I'm going to do at synagogue today. As much as they were trying to pick a fight with him, he was picking a fight with them. Why? That's not typically how we think of Jesus. I think there's at least two reasons. One, he realized they were the blind guides leading a whole blind nation astray. Laying on their backs burdens they couldn't bear and he came to set people free. So he was angry at them for their sinful leadership and their arrogance in doing it. But then second there was real love. I heard somebody say one time, I don't know who said it was great but this is a great evangelistic and whole life principle give grace to the humble give law to the proud. When you're interacting with somebody that's already really broken and struggling what do they need? They need to hear about the grace of God. I don't care how bad deep, ugly your sin is God's grace can and will cover it if you come to Him. It's grace. But when somebody is kind of a stick in the mud, boasting over their self-righteous, what do they need? Law. I had a friend last night who was talking about some friends that he has in a different denomination that are very, very, very works-based. And he's like, man, I don't. I, I try to share the gospel with them and we get in all these denominational arguments. I said, don't, don't do that. Don't talk denomination. Talk Bible. They, they believe the Bible? Yeah. I said, here's where you start. You start with the sinfulness of man. You know, when I, when I have interacted with people, maybe coming from a very legalistic Catholic, and that's not every Catholic, or Church of Christ, and that's not every Church of Christ, and they kind of have this works-based mentality. Part of what I'll, you know, especially with guys, right? It's just like, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus said sin to commit adultery. You're not never committed adultery. Great. Jesus also said it's sin just to look at a woman and have a lustful thought. You ever done that? Well, Yeah. How many times a day do you think you do that? That's always a fun question. I don't know. never thought about it before. But let's just think about it for a second. How many times a day? There, their face starts to look like that. And then you're like, you are know, like, every single time you do that, do you make sure to stop and pray and ask God to forgive you for that sin? No. So what's going to happen when you die and you face the judgment seat of Christ and you've got this record of all these adulteries of the heart that you never even repented of and asked forgiveness of. Literally, I was talking to a guy one time, really Church of Christ guy, and he hung his head and he looked at me and he said, I guess that's where grace will come in. I said, You're right if you're in Christ. But it's not just that's where grace will come in, grace comes in everywhere. And that's, and that's where, you know, he finally did come to Christ, actually. Do you understand the point I'm making? When you're dealing with somebody, ministering to somebody, and they seem like their struggle is more with legalism and self-righteousness, there's a loving way to give them the law to break them down, to humble them, so that they will see their need of grace. Listen, if you had a best friend, and let's say you're a medical tech or something, and they came to see you and you did an x-ray on them, and you're not, you're not a Ph.D. doctor, but you're pretty smart, and you could read the x-ray, and you said, you got cancer. And your friend's like, whatever, dude. You just got out of PT school or something. You're not a real doctor. I'm not listening to you. If you're a good friend, you want to do everything you can to convince them of the cancer. Why? Because until they're convinced of the cancer, they're not going to go to the doctor and get the treatment they need to get healed. And that's so much of what Jesus was trying to do with the Pharisees. He's trying to rub their arrogance, their sin, their lack of a true understanding of God and his word in their face to break them and humble them so they would repent and be saved. And some of them were, right? Like Nicodemus and others. Especially in Acts, you start to see some of the priests, some of the Pharisees come to Christ. So, um, in some sense, okay, even the strongest, most mature, most godly, most uh, gospel-centered believers are going to struggle with little tiny remnants of legalism in our heart, in our understanding, in our applications of time. And so... The best thing to do is, in a sense, I follow Jesus around. Now, the disciples could literally follow Jesus around and watch Him. How He interact with people? I can't do that, but I can follow Him around through the Word. Reading, studying, seeing more of His glory, seeing more of His grace, seeing more of His compassion, th- feeding off of it, like nourishing my soul on this God left His Father's throne above. He sacrificed all his personal privilege and came and became a curse according to the law. He was willing to be cursed by this law that he had written. Why? So that he could save me. So love. What what is the law really about in all of its right applications? It's always about love. And he's demonstrated that. And I need to be filled with that so I can go out and demonstrate that to other people as well. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the law. I pray more and more, Lord, we would understand the moral law and apply it rightly in our lives and help other people apply it rightly in their lives so that it feels like more of a blessing and less of a burden. More of a help, more of a healing, less of a hurt. Lord, make us more and more ministers of salvation to people because we're pointing to you, we're preaching you, we're preaching the cross and less and less ministers of scorn condemnation, looking down on people, because they're not just like us. Well, give us wisdom to apply all these things. Make us into the men, uh, the leaders, the laborers, the ministers you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.